So as we go about the world, it's normal that we perceive what's going on around us. We have ideas about what it is and shortcuts and ways of thinking that help us navigate. Uh, I don't think we could really live very well if we didn't have some of those shortcuts and ideas and such. But we suffer a lot when uh, these ways of thinking are not in alignment with how things are. As a simple classic example, there's the case of the snake and the rope, right? Is that you open the garden shed and you see something coiled there and your heart leaps and you say, snake. And the whole physiological reaction happens with the adrenaline. And then, you know, you open a little bit more and the light falls on it and it's a rope. And you realize, oops, okay, just a rope. But still you feel that in your system because we're pretty biologically cued to um, be afraid of snakes. Things that can cause instant death have been hardwired into our biology. So snakes, spiders, and falling in particular. But we can even make, um, you know, we can even do this in sort of more subtle, complex ways. I don't know if it's more subtle, but I remember a time when I was living at the retreat center up in Scotts Valley, and I opened a closet door in the basement, and there was a scorpion on the floor of the closet. And I knew immediately that it was a scorpion, although that was the first kind of live one that I'd seen. Um, and it took me a moment to take in that that's really what it was. I sort of thought they were desert creatures, but apparently they can live in a lot of different climates. I learned that. And so then I thought, whoa, I better, I guess I have to do something about this. I was the only one there. So I had all this fear around scorpions because I know that they can sting. And so and they don't look, they're designed to look really menacing. I think that's part of their, um, like, stance in the world is that they just look really threatening. So I actually just closed the door and I went and I read online about how to <laughs> how to take care of scorpions. Um, I wanted to try to catch it, of course. Turns out you can catch them like spiders. You know, you just get a big container. Um, so I did that because I've caught zillions of spiders in my life. But this is a really big spider. Um, but I have to say that I, I totally prepared myself. I got, I wore um, gloves and boots, <laughs> and <laughs> I got this large, wide-mouthed Tupperware container from the kitchen and a big, long spatula to kind of help get it in. I was really prepared because I was very afraid of that scorpion. And it turned out after all that, that the poor thing was terrified of me. <laughs> you know, it's like I got down there with my Tupperware and I got it on and I tried to, you know, get it to go up in there so I could get the lid on. The poor thing was just cringing. It was so afraid of what was happening to its world. I felt so bad for it. And it was super easy to get it into the container and take it outside. So after all that, my perception was telling me, you know, my stories were a little bit out of proportion to... Uh, what was going on there. 
So the Buddha was well aware of this, this issue we have with misperceiving and with telling stories about things that may or may not really be accurate or may only be partially accurate, and how much suffering and, and problems that causes in the world. So he asked us to attune to three particular qualities, so to develop three particular perceptions that we, you know, that we often don't see very clearly. And these are the perception of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, and of what might be called impersonality, or not-self, or emptiness, also called anicca, dukkha, and anatta in Pali. Because our problem, I don't know that he was so worried about the scorpions in particular, that's overcome through experience of realizing that scorpions are just afraid. Um, But he was worried about the fact that we tend to see things as permanent, as bringing eternal happiness, or as being perfect, and as uh, relating to our personal self, saying something about me, or being about me, basically. And then we suffer. We suffer when we perceive things this way. So Ruth King says this, very beautifully. She says, nothing is personal, permanent, or perfect, which I, I like. Um, so examining this tendency to misperceive and paying more attention to these three characteristics actually creates doorways to liberation from suffering. This is a great way to free the mind from its habitual ways of suffering. And I thought that since... Um, People expressed interest in the talk I gave two weeks ago about money. I thought I would um, relate these three characteristics to our financial life in this talk. Um, But first, some background. So let's start with anicca, or impermanence. The word uh, actually means inconstancy, or inconstant nietzsche, the word that's being negated, doesn't exactly mean permanent, it means constant. And you can you, know, you can sort of feel the difference between those, right? So it basically means that there's anicca means that there's change or fluctuation. The Buddha often spoke in terms of arising and passing. Um, but there are things that don't really completely pass away, they just change. And so this is maybe inconstancy might be better. It's actually a very central insight, Uh, maybe the central insight in early Buddhism, is to understand deeply impermanence. It's interesting, right, because what is so special about impermanence or inconstancy? If you walk out on the street and you say to somebody out there, do things change or do they not change? I would guess a hundred percent of people would say that they change. This is not news to anybody that things change. And yet, there's a, um, there's a discourse that says, better than 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things is one day lived seeing their arising and passing. So it's, it's pretty important. And there's, um, there are even suttas that say that observing arising and passing 
of experience, just sitting and observing that is sufficient to lead to full liberation. So that sort of might get your attention. The reality is that we just don't understand this deeply enough. We tend to think, oh yeah, some things change, but we have these underlying, somewhat unexamined beliefs that other things won't change, or that we have, you know, we can make them not change. And in particular, there's this amazing phenomenon that we watch people around us aging and dying, but we never really imagine that we're going to die. That doesn't really apply to me exactly, except that it does. And there's a lovely um, sutta that's a little song almost that's chanted uh, in Thailand, actually, when people die. This is used at memorial services, and it comes from the discourses. It was said by Saka, the king of the gods, when the Buddha passed away. So it's got some history. And it translates as, it's a lovely chant, I'm tempted to do it, maybe I will at the end. Uh, It's translated as, Impermanent truly are compound things, by nature arising and passing away. When they arise and are extinguished, their eradication brings happiness. I actually like another translation, which is, All conditioned things are impermanent. They are of the nature to arise and pass away. Those who understand this truth deeply will live happily. I think that's interesting. Those who understand this truth deeply will live happily. So there's happiness to be found in observing, arising, and passing, and finding the delight in things changing and going away. So we might think, how can that be? There are things that would go away that I'd be very unhappy about, and have been in my life, and will be. You know, my health, for example. When that's not good, I'm not happy, right? But it does change, so we have to expect that. So what what is being pointed to here? You know, what could be delightful about that change? That's getting more into what the Buddha was thinking when he said this is profound and liberating. So we can start with the everyday. This is a poem by Jane Kenyon. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. So this is, I think, what I would call genuine equanimity in that um, there's a true enjoyment of life. There's a richness and a fullness because this person is taking in everything that he or she is doing. And yet there's a true understanding that it's not going to last. It's 
not going to last. So people th- sometimes think equanimity is sort of indifference. We just say, oh, well, I don't care about the highs. I don't care about the lows. It's all changing anyway. But I like the, the richness of this. So we can imagine ways in our own life. We'll have some more examples later where there is the, there are these changes. Things are otherwise than what we might have planned on our perfect day. And there's a way in which that in itself can be freeing. So anicca, impermanence, has a number of implications if we accept that truly everything is changing and fluctuating. What, what comes about from that? And it happens that the other two characteristics are what come about. So first we'll talk about unsatisfactoriness, also called dukkha. This is a little bit echoey, huh? So if everything is changing and fluctuating, nothing can provide a stable, lasting, never-ending form of happiness. Nothing that is of this conditioned nature to arise and pass. So, again, this is something that if you ask somebody on the surface, they'd probably say, yeah, it's true. You know, there's, you know, everything's going to change, and so I shouldn't rely too much on anything. And yet... Lurking in the background is this sense of, well, I've got this one. This is really going to be with me forever, even subtly. You know, we have a good job, and we think, I'll just, I'm just going to keep doing this. I don't see why. You know, maybe you're even a tenured professor, so you theoretically could. And still, um, you know, it's not, it's not going to last forever. Relationships, we also tend to think of in that way. That's why we get so blindsided when relationships change or end. But things are unreliable. Everything is unreliable as a form of happiness, as a lasting form of happiness. Andy Olensky says it nicely. He says, Conventional strategies for human happiness entail various ways of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. The problem is that pleasure is not ultimately sustainable and pain is not avoidable. The shortcoming of our usual approaches is that they treat the symptoms rather than addressing the underlying causes of the predicament, namely that unsatisfactoriness is part of the very fabric of experience. This is also called the first noble truth. There is suffering part of what there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness or offness to experience. So sometimes when people first hear this, they think, well, that's depressing if unsatisfactoriness is part of the very fabric of experience. You know, what's, how am I going to live with that? So this is exactly why we haven't, we're not free yet, because we, we haven't figured out how to deal with that. We instead do various strategies like just trying to get more pleasure or avoiding or denying or defending against the fact that there's this change and this instability and unsatisfactoriness. So the Buddha says, you have to try a different strategy. Try turning toward things that are difficult or dukkha. Turn toward that and investigate it. So just look. He says, just look. 
He's clear. He says, don't worry, there is a way out. I wouldn't tell you to do this. I wouldn't just tell you to look at suffering if there was no way out of it. That would be cruel. But there is, but only if you look. And so we look. That's what sitting is about, some of it. So we look, and if we look, and we keep looking, we discover something very interesting, which is that a huge part of suffering is actually coming from our mind's reaction. That's one of the first things we discover, is that this is, um, it's not the objects that are actually causing the suffering, but our way of relating to them. In particular, we tend to cling to things or crave them. We tend to reject them or push them away. And we tend to identify with them, make them us, or say something about us, or long, complicated stories about them. So this is the second noble truth. It says where suffering comes from, comes from the way we relate to experience. So we don't have to make experience itself be endlessly satisfying. We need to change the way we relate to it in order that we're not struggling. There's actually a teacher who translates the word dukkha, which I sometimes don't translate because it's hard to translate. It has a lot of different elements to it. But she actually translates dukkha as struggle, which I like quite a lot. You know, the end of dukkha is when we stop struggling with our experience. Oh, okay, I don't have to make it all perfect. I don't have to get everything to work. I don't have to get my cousin to finally behave differently like I've been trying for decades. I have to stop struggling. That's a whole different ballgame then. So it's the mind that is the key to suffering and the end of suffering. I think of Leonard Cohen's song, Anthem. Ring the bells that can still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So this is an acknowledgement that things are not perfect. They're not perfect. But we could relate to that either as, oh, for, oh, that's terrible, everything is perpetually going to be imperfect, I'm always going to struggle and suffer. Or we could say, forget about perfection, uh, I'm going to offer anyway, that's how the light gets in, it's, it's the attitude, it's the perception, the way we relate to it. Just accept, accepting how things are and being content with that, which sounds like such a defeat to our egoistic mind, it's actually, first of all, difficult, <laughs> but is the key. There's a um, sutta that says, has a line in it, contentment is the greatest wealth. Contentment is the greatest wealth. Hmm. So what about that egoistic mode that we're usually in? This is now moving into that third perception that we're asked to develop that of not-self, or emptiness, or impersonality. So if nothing is constant or permanent, um, how could we ever say that anything is essentially us? We can't guarantee that anything is not going to change, so there can't be some stable element that is my core self. I will always be that way. Uh, this is the one true thing about me. And the Buddha doesn't explicitly say there's no self, there's no nothing. I mean, 
obviously, where there's this continuity of the body and the mind that we experience as our life. I don't remember other people's lives. I don't taste other people's food. Um, That's clear enough. But instead, the question is, but can you really say that that's precisely you? You know, the body. Yeah, that's okay. There are things about it that will always be kind of a characteristic of it, but uh, it's very different from when it was when I was, say, 5 or 15 or 25 or 35, keep counting up. Um, It's different, right? It changes. So the... And, of course, we're told all the cells change over every seven years or whatever it is. You don't have anything in your body that you had when you were born <coughs> in terms of actual molecules. So, not that. And then if not the body, boy, certainly not the mind. My thoughts, my feelings, my everything has changed a zillion times today. And... I'm not asking you to believe that, but just investigate now and then. Is this really, really, truly something I can say will never change? It's definitely me. So the Buddha taught instead that experience is conditioned. It's not that there are things that are true and real and constant and identifiable. Instead, he taught that there's a flow of conditions, and when the conditions for happiness are there, then there will be happiness as part of that. And then a second later, the conditions shift, and maybe what we call happiness isn't there anymore. The conditions themselves are impermanent, and so the things that they condition are also impermanent. So this is, again, an implication of the changing nature of experience, is that there's no real essence to it. This has profound implications, actually, for how we live and how much we suffer if we believe we have a true essential identity that needs to be defined and defended. That's a big project. It's a big project. Um, If we can be more fluid with that, it's a lot lighter and easier. I'm not saying you can just decide and now you have to practice to bring this about, but that's the aim. This is a lovely um, part of a song from Robert Hall. Sensation without drama, presence without history, no story to be told. Sensations move like blinking stars. The body has no form, no familiar shoulders, no arms to make us warm. Only life emerging now. It refers to the the kind of meditation that I was encouraging with the direct experience of breathing, for example. You know, there's no such thing as lungs. As uh, when we're sitting in meditation, feeling the body from the inside, we might say, oh, my lungs are expanding and contracting. But what does that really mean? Those are words, those are concepts. The experience is something more like the flicker of sensations. No story to be told. So we're talking about perception, a normal function of the mind. We see things and we have these immediate perceptions about them, these shortcuts. I'm not saying lungs is a bad concept. It's a great idea. We all know what they are. When we can, I guess, 
maybe we can talk about them then. Nice way to talk. But um, the inner experience of them is unique, perhaps. And they don't really look like you would think either, having seen cadavers. You learn a different experience about the, all those words you've learned when you actually look at the cut open body. So we learn that our perceptions, associations, predictions, and stories may not be totally accurate. All right, so let's talk about, you know, real-life experiences. I have a real-life experience going on right now in that um, due to all those heavy storms and rain, uh, there's leakage in my condo. And the... um, It took about a month to identify the source because who knows where water's coming in, right? So we thought it was either the roof or the high-up window, maybe, that had some failure in the ceiling around it. Um, And there was an incredible, I watched my mind, there was this incredible temptation to identify the one cause. It's like, what is the cause of this? This is our scientific mind saying, you know, cause, effect, there's one thing. So it was going to be either the roof or the windows, and we had to rule one out in my mind. And this wasn't exactly a neutral choice, by the way, because if it's the roof, the HOA pays for it. If it's the windows, I pay for it. (laughs) So I could see my bias also in which one I wanted, but we know that's not reality. We need to investigate neutrally. Uh, Actually, though, I noticed my linearity and my unitarity of wanting just one thing, and so I actually began to suspect that they might both be leaking. (laughs) And then... um, It turned out, after quite a bit of investigation and tests and so forth, that uh, the biggest contributor was actually some siding uh, on a roof structure, not the roof itself, some siding on part that was sticking up, which was not on our original list. (laughs) But um, so you never know. You know, how often have we looked for the cause of suffering, and we sure we're sure it's either this or that. We're sure it's either my fault or her fault, and in the end, it was like you know, the dog's fault or something. It's like, who knows, right? We don't really know. Um, Actually, the window was leaking too, so there were two different things. (laughs) Uh, But um, in all of this, I could also see my mind leaning toward these misperceptions of the three characteristics, right? I had this idea of, well, you know, why is that siding leaking? You know, how can it... How could it how could it didn't leak last year? You know, what's wrong with it? Well, things are impermanent, you know, another year of wear, of sitting in the sun, of wind and rain blowing on it, then a little gap opened up between a couple of the siding boards. It happens. Actually it was a knot that fell out of the wood, created a big hole. <laughs> this happens. Stuff doesn't last. Um, and then I thought, well, gee, you know, and this whole thing is so Challenging. Why is it so difficult to figure this out? Well, because it's not perfect. You know, things don't go that well. Um, you have to call people and get them to come up and look at the roof, and sometimes they're busy and distracted, and they don't actually see the problem, and you have to call them back, and so forth. Or did I believe somehow that there should never be a need for repairs? I think my house should just be perfect forever. Or I also was tempted to think that this was somehow a message for me personally. You know, it's like, well, this is just showing that something or other, something about, you know, 
your background. Or the other thing is that the Buddhist suttas, you know, my mind is so attuned to the Dharma teachings. There are teachings in there about um, leaky roofs, actually. And that is said to be an analogy for um, uh, the self, basically. The the hindrances um, and the defilements of the mind are said to be like a house that has a leaking roof and just allows stuff to come in. Whereas if you're totally virtuous and have a well-controlled mind, it's like having a nice house that doesn't let stuff in during the winter. So I'm, I'm doing all these um, analogies in my mind, you know, like, oh, is this saying something about my conduct in the world? Should I look at my virtue? I guess that's interesting. Um, this is my associative mind. You can see something about how my, my mind works. Or that it'll never get repaired. You know, it's like, oh, this is going to be forever. And then we're next, it's going to be another problem after this. It's going to be a permanent challenge to go through. Now, I didn't get too caught in all these, but I watched my mind, you know, having these ideas. And I know that if we're not careful, we can run off with stories like that. And that will really suffer a lot. Remember Ruth King's summary, nothing is personal, perfect, or permanent. That's just how it is. And so we deal with it. So then, let's turn to this famous topic of money that we've been considering. Consider some subtle beliefs we may have about money. Is money constant? Do you believe that money, your money is permanent? It's in the bank, that's how much you have. You'll have that same amount unless you spend it. Or can money come and go without your complete control? Right? It can go up and down. Or we have an idea kind of vaguely in our mind, especially if you're, we're younger, of, you know, okay, I'm not earning that much now. It's my first or second job. But there's going to be kind of this growth over time. I'll get a better job next time. Or, you know, maybe if I work hard enough at this, I'll get promoted or something. Or I'll be able to uh, move somewhere and do something better. So there's kind of this sense of this, you know, this upward trend. Um, but it doesn't go that way, necessarily, in quite a few number of people's lives. Um, the money goes up and down, actually. You have some huge expense you didn't know about. You'll be unemployed for three or four years. Who knows? You'll um, suddenly have to support your parents and spend a lot of money that you didn't expect to. Or um, who knows? Or you'll get really interested in the Dharma and quit your job (laughs) and uh, just go on retreats for about five years and then realize, oh, so, you know, who knows what's going to happen to your mind. Once you undertake this practice, all bets are off, you know. So money is definitely not um, permanent and constant. Can money make things perfect? If I had the right amount of money... That would be, it's always just a little more than we have, right? Just a little bit more. Then I really feel a little bit more secure. Does it provide endless, unadulterated happiness? You know, if I just had half a million dollars in the bank, then, you know, I'd still live my frugal lifestyle, but I'd have that and I'd know and it would be fine. But actually, money requires management. You could just stick it in the bank, but. Wouldn't you want to invest it, maybe? And, of course, you'd have to decide who your financial advisor would be, and then you have to decide to trust that person. And then, you know, when do you... Do you want to put it in a retirement account and 
protect it from taxes, but if you put it in there, you can't get it out earlier, so you effectively don't have that half million available to you. Money requires decisions and thought and planning. So, there is a base level that matters. I'm not saying that's not the case, that's been found, but beyond that, turns out your mind matters more. <laughs> your mind matters a lot more. Do you think that the amount of money you have says something about you? If you had more, you'd be a better person in some way. Or does it say something about other people? You know, people who are doing very well or who started a business and it succeeded? Is that different than someone who started a business and it failed? Um, you may say, no, I wouldn't be that shallow. And, you know, for the most part, that might be true on average, but there are subtle ways in which these things are true. We, should, we need to look pretty carefully at that. Um, even cases where we're judging folks who are, you know, we have a lot of homeless people here, and, you know, occasionally we may have a stray thought about laziness or uh, alcohol dependence or some such, and these things are just to be noticed. Uh, you're not a bad person for any thoughts like that. We also have very um, racially biased ways of dealing with money in this country. The system is set up to favor white people, essentially, in terms of getting loans, in terms of getting jobs, um, in terms of buying houses and even how they're treated. There's access to all kinds of things that we don't like to think about so much. Um, but it's there, silently perpetuated. So money is not very neutral for different people. It's different sex for different people. So money is starting to look a lot like dukkha, actually, when we look at this more carefully. But it certainly has all of the three characteristics. And it can be a mirror for us to see uh, the way our mind works. So that's one thing that I've come to appreciate about the many different experiences that we have in this life is that they point toward, they help us reveal what's going on in the mind. This is one reason that now pointing back toward how can it be that things that are all impermanent suffering and impersonal can lead to a sense of well-being in the world, in this crazy impermanent samsaric world. Well, if we see them as opportunities to see and not cling each moment, there's delight in that, actually. Remember that verse from Saka? Their ending is peace, non-clinging is peace, basically. So what if the very act of not identifying with, not getting caught, if that itself were our source of happiness? We can always not cling. That is always an option, no matter what it is, pleasant, painful, neutral, happy, sad, fast, slow, whatever. Um, we could always not cling. And if not clinging to that experience were peace, if we understood that to be peace, that starts to give a hint of what the Buddha was pointing at. It's not easy training to start to see the world that way. But we practice. We practice by sitting with mindfulness, being aware of what's going on, 
accepting. The path is about letting go. But if we're not letting go, we can ask questions around these three characteristics. That's what makes it a good teaching. So, for example, this is, these are questions from Ruth King. What am I perceiving? If I'm suffering, what is it that I'm perceiving? What story am I telling? What am I believing to be personal? Now, what about this is personally insulting to me and why I'm so wrapped up in it? What am I believing to be perfect or should be perfect? And what am I believing is so solid that it's going to be here forever? One of those questions is going to land on if we're suffering, it's my guess. We're either believing something to be permanent, perfect, or personal. And so looking for that can be a path to freedom. So these are my thoughts on these three characteristics in our everyday world and how they can inform the path toward finding peace with experience, no longer struggling so much with just the way life is. Do you have comments or questions? Um, when you were talking about perfection and Leonard Cohen, the first image in my mind was the uh, mandalas. Uh-huh. They, they make it in their so perfect, <laughs> you know. It's you know, or Zen Buddhism. It's like you know, everything's exact and mm. perfection. And then there's this. So it's like there is a striving for perfection. It's not like haphazard and right. You don't just say, "Oh well, it doesn't matter." You know, nothing's perfect, so I don't have to try. Right. right. And I'm sure Leonard Cohen, when he's writing, I'm sure there's part of him that's like, "I want the song to be a certain way." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, you know, and the Greeks talk, I mean, we sh- I think we strive for it, but then we dump it all out, because mm-hmm. that's what happens. Yeah, that's a nice way to say it. Um, I don't think that the idea of non-perfection or the sense of unsatisfactoriness is meant to discourage us from making our best effort or from um, attempting to create uh, beauty and balance in the world. Because I see that as, um, you know, kind of a form of honoring and uh, showing reverence for our way of being in the world. It has somehow to do with with virtue and beauty for me. Um, I'm reminded also, though, of the carvers in China who would make these almost, these perfect doors that had these beautiful, you know, very complex inlaid jade and carved wood and everything. And then on the back they'd make a little cut in it so that it was not quite perfect, so it wouldn't offend the gods. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I just noticed my own thinking how I use the word dump out. Uh-huh. And I realized, like, well, that's, that's a dangerous thought. Or not a dangerous, but like, wow, that's how I see it, that change. Mm-hmm. But really... There's nothing that it changes form, meaning they'll put it in a river, or they'll 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 let it they'll send it off into the ether. But it actually it doesn't really die off; it changes form. So it actually, at some level, um, it doesn't die. It it kind of 
go somewhere, you just have to let go of the notion where it's going to go. Right. You're referring to when, the, after the mandala is made, they upend it and all the sand flies off or goes into the river. Right. Yeah. So a song or a, a poem or anything, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really, it, it, you hope, or that's the goal. You don't know where it's going to go, but it goes somewhere. Yeah, and we don't hold on to the form it's in. We allow that form to change and be something else. Yeah. Thank you. Did you have a... Yeah, Rex. You brought to mind something that has been shown in research over and over again, that people who have a sense of control over their lives are happier and healthier and live longer. And yet that's almost the opposite of our teachings in that we don't, it's an illusion of control in many cases. Oh, this is an interesting point. So, well, it may depend what's meant by the word control. So, you know, if we believe we're in control in the form of nothing bad will happen to me, I've set it up so that, um, you know, I'm protected in various ways. Um, I would say that that's a, a thin form of control. You know, maybe, maybe not. Because, uh, you know, you could get cancer tomorrow and it's all changed. Um, a person who has completely given up control through mastery of the mind and development of the teachings and really understanding emptiness um, has the sense that they can handle anything without, because they won't struggle with it. You know, there will be peace in anything. Even if I get cancer tomorrow, I'm going to be fine. Even if I lose all my money, even if there's a world war that breaks out tomorrow, um, I, would, I would be able to deal with that without going crazy. There's a lovely sutta where um, there's a sort of a call and a sort of a contrast between a farmer who's saying, um, I'm all set for the winter. I've got everything stored up. I've got my cows in the barn. I've got my grain in the granary. So let the rains come. And the Buddha says, I own nothing, so let the rains come. And then the farmer talks about relationships and says, I have a wonderful wife and children, and everybody's happy and healthy, so let the rains come. And the Buddha says, I have no attachment to my relationships, even though I have associates, so let the rain come. And there's this contrast back and forth between someone who has, yes, attained some degree of worldly happiness and control, um, and the Buddha who says there's a deeper form. So I think, um, I think there's multiple levels of that. Certainly people who have their lives in order are more conventionally happy than those who are struggling in poverty. I think those what, that's what these psychological studies point toward. And the Buddha um, is saying something more radical than that. Just like when you um, talk about stress and how you know, there's different ways, you know, different studies and ways and acceptance to look at, like if you have these particular stresses, it adds to like a really large number, and and clearly stress has a big effect 
more and more I think they're realizing on our bodies, but the most important thing about stress and how it will affect our body is our perception of that mm-hmm. stress. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that um, I think we're doing in meditation is developing um, greater strength of awareness. That's the phrase I've been using lately. And the stronger strength of awareness that we have, kind of the more ballast our mind has. So it's still going to be unpleasant if um, a person loses their job, but a person with a strength of awareness to be able to just hold that and say, oh wow, I lost my job today, that's a whole different thing than someone with a much smaller store, if you will, of awareness. And then it's a huge jolt, maybe. And so this is what we're doing and fortifies us in certain ways against those uh, shocks of life. And if we go far enough, uh, it can really transform the mind. There's multiple levels here. Yeah. It is kind of interesting when um, we have a conversation with someone that doesn't have the practice um, we had a recent experience where a friend was complaining about circumstances in her life, and she was talking about very specific about her relationship, how she wanted it to be the way it used to be. And so I said, that's clinging. And so I tried to get her to understand the concept of what clinging was and how that could lead to suffering. And then she went on to the next one. So, I mean, there was always another one. So each time I tried to explain what it was that was that was triggering her reactions and triggering her dukkha and unhappiness. And it's interesting because some people want to hear this and some people don't. That's and true. So at the end of the conversation I realized I did my best to try to get her to understand how important it is to appreciate what she does have and to look at, you know, the good points because she does have uh, someone who is constant, even though she's not as happy with the relationship, he is very constant in, in what he does and very reliable. And so, you know, to try to point out the positives and to have her focus on the positives rather than the negatives. And that's the interesting thing about people. When they're at a certain place and they're very, very unhappy, it pretty much engulfs them. And it's really, really hard for some of them to see anything positive. And, and so, you know, it, it was an interesting conversation because I felt like I did what I could, but it really isn't going to be long-term satisfactory for her because probably as soon as I leave, she's going to forget everything I said and go right back to the way she was, and, you know, focusing on all the criticisms and not thinking of any of the positive experiences that they've had in the entire relationship that she's focusing on. So, it's a... Yeah, it's hard to sometimes know the um, the best way to meet a person. Sometimes we're directly saying teachings. Sometimes we're just planting seeds. Sometimes it's uh, more subtle than that, even. I do know that there's, I remember a quote from someone who was a practitioner whose family didn't really approve of her practice, and she discovered that... Um, she says, when I'm a Buddhist, they hate me, but when I'm a Buddha, they love me. So <laughs> sort of embodying rather than explaining. Yeah. Well, I thought I could explain to her because she had gone through the mindfulness-based ah, yeah. program. 
so I kind of thought maybe she would yeah. hear some of it. But you're right, sometimes people aren't in a mode where they can hear. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. Mm-hmm. We'll stop because we're, we're at the end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.